Um, and one of the reasons why you're able to listen to a program like Let's Talk and other programs that are on the schedule here on WBAI is because of listeners like yourselves who are ardent supporters of what we do here, trying to give you a perspective of the world that is unique and distinctive from our counterparts that are within the commercial world as well as the public broadcast world as well you you are the reason why we call this listener sponsored media and we thank you in advance for that make sure whatever premiums that uh, we will make sure that whatever premiums you requested during our most recent fund drive will be fulfilled as soon as possible as you honor your pledge stay tuned for driving forces with celeste katz and jeff simmons coming up it is now one minute past 5 p.m stay tuned Welcome to Driving Forces. This is a weekly show about politics and policy and, of course, an opportunity for you to tell us what's on your mind, especially in the wake of Tuesday's general election. And if you've been following the uh, the city news, the state news, the national news, we're really curious between our callers today, uh, our guests today, if you'd like to give us a call and tell us what you think. I am, as always, joined by my lovely co-host who arrived here by the skin of her teeth, Celeste Katz. It is a pleasure to be here with you, Jeff Simmons. Hello, everybody in Radioland. The number to call in between our guests is 347-335-0818. And we want to hear from you today. We want to hear what's on your mind. And we're going to really just get to our first guest today because we've got three dynamic guests who are going to assess the political landscape. Uh, Celeste, would you like to introduce our first guest? I would love to, actually, because this is somebody that I've spoken to uh, many times, interviewed many times about politics, and I'm, I'm looking forward to this conversation. It's a pleasure to have on the air with us Christina Greer. She's Associate Professor of Political Science and American Studies at Fordham University. You can see her on uh, New York One News and doing commentary uh, on uh, MSNBC talking about policy and politics. She is also the author of Black Ethnics, Race, Immigration, and the Pursuit of the American Dream. Professor Greer, it is a pleasure to have you on the program. Thank you all so much for having me. So uh, we wanted to jump into this right away. Obviously, a, a lot to talk about here. But, uh, you know, if you want to just start us off with maybe some of your initial impressions, what were your big takeaways from uh, from Tuesday night? Well, I didn't have many surprises. Um, I, you know, going around the country, you know, lots of people were excited about Beto O'Rourke, which is great. Um, but I think Texas is not yet as purple as we think it is. Um, I think that the Latinx community is there, but just not registered to vote. Uh, and I don't think Democrats have put in the money and the infrastructure to really support uh, Democrats across the state. Uh, so I wasn't surprised that Ted Cruz, who's also an incumbent, um, was able to get that win. Um, I knew Andrew Gillum would have a tight race because if you look in 2014 and 2010, governor's races have been decided by one percentage point. Um, I was a little disappointed that he... Uh, conceded so quickly. And now we see that uh, it's a state-mandated runoff. So who knows? Um, and then with Stacey Abrams, I knew that, you know, the fact that she was running against um, 
the Secretary of State would make it one of those situations where we'd see a lot of shenanigans, mayhem, and ridiculousness, and that's what we're seeing. Um, thousands and thousands of votes not being counted. Um, we're calling it voter suppression. I think it's just straight-up theft. Uh, so, you know, the races across the country, lots of inspiring races, lots of new diversity going into Congress, which is fantastic. Obviously, lots of women and people of color and people within the LGBTQ community. Um, and then in New York, you know, Andrew Cuomo, who knows Albany better than anyone <laughs> in New York State, um, cruised to victory. I wasn't really surprised. Um, Tish James making history uh, was great. You know, the fact that New York State is pretty much had, um, besides George Pataki, but, you know, pretty pretty solidly Democratic statewide leadership. Um, but we have seen that it's been difficult for women and people of color to oftentimes win statewide. So obviously Tish James winning statewide is, is historic uh, for a host of reasons. And then Tom DiNapoli, you know, most people don't know what a controller does. And so a lot of people, you know, we saw a turnout, which is fantastic, but uh, I haven't seen the final numbers, but we're still in, say, like 40%. So even though it was an exciting uh, Tuesday, we still have so many people who have not turned out and, and still don't turn out to vote. Um, I think a Democratic state Senate in New York State will be uh, very beneficial for a lot of New Yorkers who want sort of protections about uh, women's rights or marriage equity and climate change or education. Uh, but it'll be fascinating to see how the governor works with a unified government that is having people within his party uh, in control of the legislature and the state Senate, because for so long Cuomo has been able to say, oh, I wish I could help out. But, you know, those pesky Republicans have all the power. Um, and now, uh, if he really does want to push forward in a, a progressive agenda, he's He's got the votes to do it. And in fact, what do you, given that we're going to soon have total Democratic uh, domination upstate or throughout the state, what do you think are some of the first issues that they're going to tackle? Well, I think, you know, the, the governor has made it clear that he, he really does want to make sure that he puts forward essentially like a statewide Roe v. Wade protection, just because I think it's fascinating, you know, in the 1960s when LBJ was president, you saw so many marginalized groups looking to the federal government for protection. Um, and then the federal government would set precedent, and then the states were slow to follow, but, you know, ultimately they'd sort of finagle a way to do so. Um, because our federal government is so erratic right now um, and filled with people, you know, who don't necessarily know how government works and aren't necessarily interested in how government works, a lot of marginalized groups are looking to state houses for protection. So um, I do think that uh, some sort of DREAM Act or immigration protection would be on the docket uh, sort of for early agenda um, after, I think, sort of this this women's bill, women's reproductive rights bill. Um, I do think that, you know, there will likely be some conversations about gun control just because, yet again, today we have another mass shooting. Um, and so that's going to be a much more complicated issue for um, the Democrats to assess because that's where we start to get into First Amendment rights. And certain Democrats are in, in districts that, you know, do have hunting. And I don't think many Democrats are saying take away all guns, but there is a complicated way of how we would manage that. Um and then, you know, obviously education, environment, how we would figure out redistricting is very important, um, especially because with the citizenship question possibly being on the census, we know that many people will likely not fill out the census. Um, there's a possibility that New York could lose a seat. And so how do we then figure out what our district lines look like? So I, I think that there are a lot of issues on the table. Obviously, marijuana is another one. There's been conversation, you know, with the entrance of Cynthia Nixon 
coming into the race, we saw Andrew Cuomo shimmy to the left faster than anyone could have <laughs> anticipated. Um, but there is a real conversation about the difference between legalization of marijuana and decriminalization of marijuana. Um, and I think that's where it's going to be a little more nuanced depending on uh, where people represent certain constituents. And if you're just joining us here on WBAI 99.5 FM, we are speaking with Professor Christina Greer of Fordham University about the outcome in uh, this week's elections and and what it all means. I'm Celeste Katz from Glamour Magazine, co-hosting every week at five with Jeff Simmons. Um, Professor Greer, I want to go back to something you were talking about for a moment. We can we can come back to New York, but um, specifically. you were talking about uh, civil rights going back to the you know uh, LBJ days and so on. Uh, the Voting Rights Act, obviously, a, uh, a big deal uh, uh, earlier on, and uh, some protections there uh, for uh, people who have been disenfranchised. Uh, we've seen today that uh, the Secretary of State uh, in Georgia, Brian, uh, Brian Kemp, has uh, resigned his position, which involved overseeing the election. Uh, in, uh, Stacey Abrams has vowed to... Uh, to fight for every vote. Uh, what do you th- is there are we going to see any change after something like this in terms of of, of uh, voting protections, uh, voter suppression problems? Uh, people here even in, in New York have have said that they have had um, they have seen uh, voting problems in minority districts. Do you see Oh yeah, I mean gonna, this is, is this going to change anything? Voting has always been a tool of oppression and suppression in this country. I mean, there are people who lost their jobs for registering to vote. There are people who lost their lives, whether they were shot, lynched, or raped for trying to vote or register people to vote. Fannie Lou Hamer talked about that most famously. Ida B. Wells, who investigated lynchings, some of those lynchings were uh, people who were trying to organize others to vote. So we have a long, uh, really horrific history of trying to disenfranchise Uh, especially African-Americans when it comes to the vote, because the vote is so powerful. Uh, In Georgia, for example, I mean, the fact that the Secretary of State was allowed to be a candidate and also the referee in his own race should let us know that we can never look at any other, you know, country and point our fingers and say they're not a democracy. This is one of the most undemocratic things ever. And the fact that, you know, we're still discovering voting booths that were, you know, in a warehouse just wrapped up and, you know, communities saying, oh, I got my voting booth, but no plugs. I mean, this is... This isn't just voter suppression. This is just straight-up theft, and we have to call it what it is. Um, unfortunately, if and when, you know, if Kemp is victorious, then he would appoint someone most likely who would agree with his tactics. And so part of the problem is um, he's trying to sort of breeze through the state of Georgia like Sherman and say, well, you know what, let me just resign and start working on a transition team, because if I just keep saying I'm governor enough and I keep pretending like I won, then all this will go away, right? And it'll look like Stacey Abrams is just nagging and wasting voters' money. But the problem is there's still thousands upon thousands of votes that haven't been counted. Similarly, you you know go up north a little bit to New York. Um, we don't have early voting. We don't have same-day registration. So we're looking at these southern states that we always try and say are, you know, not as progressive as we are. But Georgia had you know, a few weeks of early voting. Um, North Carolina has, you know, weekend voting, and obviously they've taken a lot of that away because it works so well, right? And so you see the Supreme Court sort of self-correcting, saying, oh, well, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 was so successful, 
and we now see all these marginalized communities voting, let's take it away because clearly it works now. So we don't need it anymore, which is the antithesis of what needs to happen. Um, And so unfortunately in this country, with all the progress that we have made and continue to make because the Constitution is a beautiful, living, breathing document, we always have these moments in our history where you know, we've made strides and then they're taken away. And so this is why protest politics and electoral politics must go hand in hand because we have to sort of keep our boot on the neck of our elected officials to make sure we still demand what is ours as far as our democracy is concerned. So locally, one of the things that surprised me, especially as I watched the early returns, I mean, as you know from our email exchange, I was uh, religiously watching you on New York One, uh, on uh, as well as CNN on uh, Tuesday night, but the uh, watching the early returns on the ba- three ballot proposals, and they seem to be overwhelmingly approved. What do you think led to this, uh, you know, this trifecta of... Uh, of support for uh, the de Blasio administration's uh, proposals on here? Because do you think people weren't informed and just decided to cast yes? Do you think they knew both positions? What are your views on this? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, in the past for, for uh, this isn't my wheelhouse, but um, academics who study this work oftentimes um, say, like, you know, most people will just vote yes, right? Mm-hmm. Um this, I, the one thing I was impressed by was the the language wasn't confusing. We, you know, unfortunately in New York, we've had ballot proposals before with double negatives, right? And so I have I have a PhD and I've had to read it several times. So even the reading comprehension level and the way it's written is, you know, a lot of states make it confusing for a reason because they they want you know certain things to pass. Um, obviously, most famously was what was it, Prop 8 in California, where if you believed in marriage equity, you voted no on Prop 8, right? I mean, it's just counterintuitive. Mm, right. And so New York has done things like that in the past. Um, I think, you know, obviously there's been some outreach um, by, you know, certain organizations that definitely were entities that really wanted these proposals to pass. But most voters, um, the literature has shown us that they tend to lean yes if if they're confused. The sad thing is most people did not know that these ballots were on um, or that these proposals were on the ballot. So when you're in the booth, you have limited time. You possibly have waited in line already for an hour or two. Um, this isn't the time to sort of sit there for 30 minutes and deliberate. So it's like, okay, so community boards serving more than four terms. Sure, that seems like let's curtail that, right? Um Civic Engagement Commission, sure, that seems great because we need more civic engagement, uh, you know, and limiting contributions, sure, that seems great. So, you know, the buzzwords in the proposals seemed accessible and they seemed like they made sense. Um, now, when when the rubber hits the road, it's a little more nuanced, and that's why you had sort of people who were in the know debating back and forth as to whether or not you should vote yes or no on particular items. That's uh, the the idea of of access is is interesting and and I sort of want to jump off on that just a, a little bit uh, uh, maybe go to sort of a national view but I think it also relates to New York this uh, watching watching these elections we've seen a, a pretty significant increase uh, in terms of. Um, women and including women of color being represented, uh, being uh, elected, winning primaries, and then winning general election contests uh, across the country. We're going to have a bunch of uh, historic firsts. Uh, For example, we're going to have the first women of color to represent uh, uh, Massachusetts in Congress, uh, Connecticut, 
Uh, we're going to have the first Native American women, first um, uh, Muslim women, an example of, you know, they're, you know the, the list uh, encouragingly, encouragingly goes on. Uh, what I want to ask you, though, is uh, do you think this is the start of something or do you think there was something particular about this year and, and the perhaps the, the political climate created by by Donald Trump uh, that, yeah. that led to this? What's what's going on there? Well, I think a lot of people were inspired. We also saw a lot of first time candidates. Mm -hmm. Um, who were running. And so, you know, I don't think that it'll slow down. But what I think we need to sort of assess, especially the Democratic Party needs to assess, is that a lot of these women won despite not having support of the party. So if they, especially if they were challenging an incumbent. And so when you think about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, you know, wasn't endorsed by the mayor, wasn't endorsed by the Working Families Party. You know, she did the door knocking. We think about Ayanna Priestley, the first black woman um, to go to Congress from the state of Massachusetts. You know, she ran against an incumbent male, white male um, uh, in Massachusetts, and the CBC endorsed her opponent, not her. And so there's this assumption of, you know, staying the course and going with the person who's the established Democrat and not necessarily asking yourself, is this what the community is asking for? Is this what the time calls for? So we see this, you know, across the state. Um, you know, where was the Democratic Party sort of supporting Stacey Abrams early on, right? All the polls had her way up, and we saw the, the party was supporting Stacey Evans just because of the assumption that it's Georgia and that a white woman would, would win, and Stacey Abrams wins 153 out of 159 counties. So I think we have to ask ourselves, you know, if these interesting, dynamic, um, diverse candidates are running, what did we do to support them from the beginning? Um, you know, the end results came up, but, you know, could we have had multiple, um, even more results if we had actually taken certain candidates more seriously? And just a, a quick follow-up to that, because I, I think you you make an interesting point there. You're talking about these candidates, these first-time candidates, in many cases, these quite progressive candidates uh, having success despite not being supported, quote-unquote, by the establishment. Now that they're going to come into office and now that other uh, candidates have seen that uh, it can be done, um, do you think that this is going to change the way the party works? It's sort of in... in not, maybe not the greatest comparison, but uh, in the 2016 presidential primary, you saw Hillary Clinton move to the left in the face of a, a, a significant challenge from Bernie Sanders, who was, you know, super left. Are we going right. to, is this going to kind of blow up the party or, or what, well, what, I think, what's that? I think the Democrats have a lot to think about, right? I mean, Bernie showed us that there's a, a very large progressive wing within the party, but there are a lot of Democrats who are not progressive. They're Democrats, and they think that the way to win is to be centrist. And depending on what state they're from, that makes sense. You know, sometimes it's not enough for, say, someone like Claire McCaskill or Heidi Hancap, you know, but they're clearly much more conservative or right-leaning than the vast majority of their colleagues. I think also, you know, the biggest fight, I think the first fight, will be trying to figure out the leader of the Democratic Party, especially in the House, because um, some people argue, you know, Nancy Pelosi knows how D.C. works, and, you know, she had a huge success with Obamacare, and so we should stay the course and stay with Nancy Pelosi. You also have quite a few new people coming in who say, well, you know what? I don't know if that's the best strategy. And so figuring it out is going to be a little bit difficult because obviously when you have ingrained institutional structures, that's one thing, and a lot of people are comfortable and satisfied and safe with that leadership, and other people want to come and rock the boat. And if they came in on an insurgent you know, wave um, and the people from their particular district are expecting a certain type of leadership, and they may want someone different. So I'm curious as to 
uh, what that, I don't want to call it a fight, but what that emerging leadership will look like and how much of it will be behind the scenes and how much of it will it be for all of us to sort of see and analyze and so, weigh in in certain ways. So, Christina, thank you very much for joining Celeste and I on Driving Forces. We've been speaking with Christina Greer, Associate Professor of Political Science and American Studies at Fordham University. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you all. Have a great one. You too. Bye-bye. So we are now up to our next guest, I believe. Uh, Great, we've got our next guest on the line. Uh, Celeste, would you like to introduce her? Yes, I will. And uh, this is another uh, person that I'm very happy to have here on the program. Uh, Does a lot of work that that, uh, I use in my reporting at at Glamour to to analyze the midterms. Uh, We have now with us uh, Debbie Walsh. She is the director of the Center for American Women and Politics, which is a unit of the Eagleton Institute of Politics at Rutgers University. The center is nationally recognized as a leading source of scholarly research and data about American women's per, uh, political participation, not only as candidates, but as voters, and uh, getting that information out to uh, to explain more about women's leadership and influence in public life. And she has been with the center for, correct me if I'm wrong, 19, uh, since 1981 and director for the last 17 years. It's a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, and thank you for uh, always using us for your data on women in politics, Celeste. We appreciate it. I do, but you know, it's really, it's really, really good data. And as a matter of fact, <laughs> I have another story coming out that has even even more data uh, about turnout. So maybe I should like, I, Jeff's just like, why are you still speaking? So hey, Jeff, why don't you ask a question? Well, I was actually, Debbie, I was actually going to start off by quoting a Glamour reporter, uh, her piece, uh, that was posted online where, and ask you to uh, expand on this. Not only did diversity take a front seat in Tuesday's results, something else became crystal clear. Democrats could not have flipped the House blue without women. Debbie, your reaction to that? How, what an insightful reporter that is. Uh, <laughs> I, that's absolutely, um, those are some of the key takeaways that we have as well from this race, which was that we saw tremendous diversity among the House candidates, a third of the women who were running uh, were women of color, and we're seeing that diversity now in the in the new the newly elected women. Um, at least eleven of the newly elected women who will be going to Washington um, are women of color, um, and they may well make up about a third of the freshman class of women um, who go to Washington. So. It's really, um, uh, it's, it's really a, a great moment to see women um, and women of color taking a seat at the table in Washington. Um, and I think it, it is such a great sign also that women were, um, in large part, the drivers uh, of, this, of the change of power in the House. Um, women as voters and women as candidates. Um, when we look at at the number of new women elected and the number of women who um, beat uh, incumbent members of Congress, I mean, we're really seeing uh, those women as a driving force. And in fact, you know, we talk about women uh, changing the demographics of the elected bodies, but how did women change the the discussion uh, in, in during campaigns this season? You know, I think women ultimately were running um, 
you know, I think what what's triggered so many of these candidacies was the election of Donald Trump. Um, women woke up the day after he was elected, and they were angry. They felt their voices weren't heard. Um, I think they truly believed that um, this country wouldn't elect somebody who could get caught on tape saying the things he was saying about sexually assaulting women, um, a man who has been accused by multiple women of sexual harassment and sexual assault. And the way he talked to the women that he ran against, um, both in the primary with Carly Fiorina um, and, and Hillary Clinton in the general election, I think there was a kind of a disbelief. And, and then they woke up the morning after and he had gotten elected. And I think it really was a kind of a wake-up call about where do women stand in society and, and what role do they have and what kind of voice do they have? And women wanted to have a voice and they wanted to make sure that they had agency over um, their lives and the lives of their families and in their communities. And, and that's what spurred them on. But at the end of the day, when they were really running, it wasn't a campaign just saying, you know, we don't like Donald Trump. It was a campaign for issues. Um, they ran a four things, and they ran for protecting health care coverage for for people and people with pre-existing conditions, but for all of us. Um, uh, they they campaigned on you know, uh, Medicare expansion and Medicaid expansion. They they campaigned on environmental issues and gun safety, um, and they were you know they were talking about the issues that affected affected. Uh, all of us. And they were, I think, really in touch with voters. But they also campaigned differently than they have in the past. Um, I think the women who were running this time had a much wider range uh, that they were allowed to operate in. In the past, I think women have been very constrained. They've been told they have to walk a pretty narrow path of how they can talk and what they can wear and don't talk about your kids and don't talk about any of your personal vulnerabilities. And I think this time we saw what has been called um, by some the 360-degree candidate, you know, a candidate who is talking about all the aspects of her life and bringing everything that it means to be a woman to the table and seeing that as a value added. So whether it was their personal Me Too stories or experiences um, growing up in a family where a parent was a, a, a dr drug addicted or a sibling who struggled with mental health issues or carrying their own student loan debt and even talking about your young children. I feel like motherhood was front and center in this campaign and people weren't asking these women why, who's going to take care of your kids if you get elected. They were talking about being moms, and because they were moms, they understood the challenges that, that families across this country face. And I think it made these candidates much more accessible and much more real to the voters. Um, and I think that's been a struggle, because I think women, you need to be likable and you need to be considered, uh, you need to be considered qualified. And sometimes in an effort to sound qualified, women weren't talking about their real lives, um, and that made them less likable. I, I think that's uh, 
that's a very very interesting point i'd like to i'd like to stay on that for one second just a reminder if you're just joining us you're listening to driving forces on wbai 99.5 fm and we are speaking with debbie walsh she is the director of the center for american women and politics um so going back to uh to what you said just there the uh, that research correct me if i'm wrong but i think women have to be both perceived as likable and qualified men only have to be perceived as qualified right is that the double standard yeah i think it's uh i think men are assumed to be qualified actually um i think women have to prove their qualifications in ways that men do not there's an assumption about about qualifications and women have to have other people kind of verifying their qualifications, you know, getting other authorities to say they're qualified. And in fact, political consultants will tell women often, just have somebody get up and say that you're qualified. Just hearing that word helps for women because that assumption is not there for them. Um, and, And I think what happens is in an effort to always sound and talk about policy and be qualified, women have been steered away from being personal. Um, and the personal has been seen as something that only is kind of a minefield. You know, your kids are a bit of a minefield because of this issue that I just raised, you know, that who's going to take care of your kids? Where when a man has young kids, people think, well, of course that they have a spouse and, and that spouse is going to take care of those kids. We don't have to worry about them. Um, and they have to, they just have to kind of stay on the straight and narrow of policy. And, and, you know, people don't like policy wonks that much. So it becomes a thing where you almost create a, a situation where you're not, you're in an effort to be so qualified, you may take away some of that sense of this is somebody I'd like to have dinner with. Um, and, and candidates, in a way, do need both, and men kind of get a pass on the qualifications part. Uh, in terms of the the uh, issue of of uh, women sort of being themselves and and showing people their real lives or talking about uh, stuff other than their sort of traditional platform white paper promises type of uh, uh, type of pitch, it's interesting that that um, you bring that up. I wanted to ask you a question about it because some of the uh, candidates that got a ton of attention that really grabbed uh, a lot of a lot of headlines uh, with with these. Uh, personal and unique approaches in this campaign ultimately uh, did not end up being uh, successful. And, you know, that could be for, for various reasons, but I'm thinking about, uh, for example, uh, Zephyr Teachout uh, here in New York, ran for attorney general, uh, did a commercial featuring her uh, having a sonogram of her uh, forthcoming baby, uh, MJ Hagar uh, running for Congress in Texas, uh, doing this uh, super viral video about her military service yep. uh, and so on. Uh, and so on. Uh, so you see that um, uh, this can get a lot of attention. But I did actually appear on a, a, a podcast recently with Slate, where some of the women—it um, was—it was an all-female podcast—and some of the women said they almost felt like it was a little uh, performative. Was the word almost like a little gimmicky? Do you think that there are still some dangers? For I think women there are ways here? that you do it, and there are ways that you don't. So. For instance, you well remember the ads where the women were breastfeeding um, in their ads. And I will say those women did not make it through to the, through their primary. M.J. Hager did. It, it, that ad worked for her 
um, or, or the or her ads and her the way she ran worked for her through the primary. It got her through the primary. The breastfeeding did not, and I think sometimes it can be sort of superfluous. Like those ads were not about that issue, and it just felt a little gratuitous. And I think um, they did they didn't work. Um, and I do think that some of the others. Um, you know, some of them, like I think about the Tammy Baldwin ad, I don't know if you saw that one, where she talks about her mother, um, you know, coming home from school and she was locked out of her house and her mother was inside um, doing drugs and she's kind of pounding on the door. Um, those did work. And I think, I, think, I think now we're in that stage where we're kind of figuring out how to do those well. Um, I think if you saw some of the ads in New Jersey for Mikey Sherrill, she did them, uh, I think, really well, where it just showed her life, you know, and it showed the variety of experiences. So it showed her as a veteran, um, as a fighter pilot, as a, as a Navy uh, helicopter pilot. You saw her as a mom. You saw her as a federal prosecutor. Um, I think the, comps, the ads that... Um, Jennifer Wexner ran down in Virginia where she showed kind of what it meant to be a mom and with her kids. And, and I think some of those worked, but I think we're in the, we're in the new stage of that, uh, Celeste. And I think you're right. I think some of them did work and some of them didn't. And we're going to see that over time, how those evolve. But I do think that overall that kind of revealing more about your life worked better for candidates this time, women candidates. And, and, and in fairness, I should probably add, of course, that in some of these contests, uh, these were uh, first-time candidates or uh, candidates that were going up against uh, entrenched incumbents. Absolutely. And, and, so, and, and uh, the, the MJ ads were absolutely that. I think they were pretty good ads, and she was in a really uphill battle. Right. right. So fair, fair to point that out as well. So... Uh, I'm really curious, given that in some areas of this country, it was clearly obvious that this was a referendum on Trump. But given the proximity to the recent to the recent Kavanaugh hearings, I'm curious if you if you thought that played a significant role in either turnout or in decisions, uh, given that, you know, this is still resonating in the country about the uh, Supreme Court pick. Yeah, you know, I was sorry. I didn't see a lot on the exit poll that would give us a sense of that. Um, I do think it it had it 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 might well have upped. I think it might have upped the turnout in the sense that on both sides, actually, I think for Democratic, uh, although I think feel like Democratic voters and Democratic women in particular were already so energized that you know they barely could wait to get to the polls on Tuesday. Um, but I think that it might have awoken the kind of sleeping bear of of the Trump base, particularly after the fact when the the line out of the White House and out of out of um, Trump supporters and Kavanaugh supporters was, you know, this this was a horrible situation and men need to be afraid now. Um, and Donald Trump Jr. talking about being more afraid of his son. His sons, for his sons who could be accused falsely in their future as opposed to their daughters, you know, his daughters who actually might get sexually assaulted or sexually harassed. Um, and, and that was the line. It was kind of a fear, a fear line. And I think it probably worked to stir up that base and get them out. Um, and I think they were doing all kinds of things to stir up the base. 
where I think it might have had an impact um, are on those three Senate races with those three Democratic senators who lost um, uh, in Indiana, Donnelly in Indiana, and particularly for Heitkamp in North Dakota and even Claire McCaskill in Missouri, where, you know, they made a decision in tough races in states that are, I don't know as much about Indiana, but certainly Missouri and North Dakota, North Dakota especially, very red states. Um, these were women who were running who were already in in danger um, of losing, and I think made, honestly, a pretty courageous decision to vote um, their conscience uh, and vote against Kavanaugh, and that may well have been sort of the final straw for some Republican voters um, and independent voters in their states. Um, and again, if you're just joining us, you're listening to WBAI 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. Celeste Katz and Jeff Simmons here talking with Debbie Walsh of the Center for American Women and Politics at the Rutgers Eagleton Institute of Politics. Um, I have to admit, speaking of speaking of my uh, my deep, <laughs> my uncontrollable urge to uh, keep talking to people from, from the center. Actually, I interviewed Susan Carroll earlier today. Oh, good. Uh, I did. But it was super helpful. It was, because I had a bunch of questions, but I, I wanted to uh, to uh, check in on, on something about that as well. We're hearing a lot of uh, talk about sort of, I don't know if you want to call it suburban women or white suburban women and their, their role in this election versus uh, in, in in terms of flipping the House uh, versus and not flipping the Senate uh, versus uh, women of color. And uh, I just wonder, you know, I, I hate to hear this sort of like monolithic women did this, women did that thing. But, uh, you know, do you see do you see any um, uh, messages for us here about 2020 or about going ahead to the next midterms based on generally what we saw in this election when it comes to women as voters? What? Women as voters or yeah. women as candidates? Women as voters. Well, yeah. um, well I, I, if you've talked to Sue, you all, you know this, but um, women, we've been seeing a difference in the way women have been voting since 1980. And it's been, uh, the, the fact is that women are more likely to vote for Democrats um, and less likely to vote for Republicans than are men. Um, and women also turn out, by the way, at higher rates than men. In the last presidential election, about 10 million more women voted um, than did men. Um, but as you say, women are not monolithic. Um, probably the strongest group of uh, Democratic voters, period, are black women. Um, Latinas in this in the election we just had, 73% of them cast ballots for Democratic candidates, um, 92% of black women. Um, and, but there's been all this talk about and a lot of targeting at um, uh, these white college-educated women. And this time around, we saw them voting um, more for Democratic candidates. Uh, 59% voted for Democratic House candidates. Um, now, white women without college degrees um, only voted 42% for Democratic candidates. Um, and and in the presidential election in 2016, those white college-educated women pretty much split their vote between Democrats and Republicans. So that seems to be a vote that is shifting and moving, and I think a target of opportunity for Democrats um, 
to capitalize um, on in the future and continues to be a challenge for Republicans. You know, I think when George W. Bush was president, when Mitt Romney was running, when John McCain ran, they were doing a lot to try to kind of make some inroads into that gender gap. I don't think they believed they could completely win the women's vote, but they wanted to do better so that in close and tight elections they might have a little bit more support. Um, I, I think Donald Trump has un, undi, un, has very much undone all of that kind of work, um, also the work that I think those candidates did to try to reach out to Latino voters. So um, in the face of that, there's, there are real opportunities there, I think, for Democratic candidates. Um, I also think when we go back to this notion of the issue of, of black women as powerful, a powerful force on the Democratic side um, for Democratic candidates, you know, there's, a, there's an issue here about making sure that those voters also get paid attention to after the election, right? So it's not like using dem- a black women uh, to get you through the election and then not really paying attention to you, uh, to those women as a constituency afterwards, um, and paying attention to and listening to and, and making sure that policies that are needed and wanted by that community are being implemented. And so that is one of those challenges. And I think you saw that after the Doug Jones election when, um, there was a, a, a real recognition that without black women, um, Doug Jones would not have gotten elected, um, and the Democrats would not have that win in their column. Um, and people were talking about thanking black women for that, and there was a whole movement about, you know, don't thank us, um, make sure that you pay attention to us after. So I think it's a, you know, the Democrats have some real targets of opportunity, and they need to make sure that they're also paying attention to um, black women voters, women of color voters in general after the election as well. And on that note, we're going to need to end the segment. But first, Debbie, can you tell our listeners how to learn more about the center? Absolutely. Please come and visit us at the Center for American Women on Politics at COP, C-A-W-P dot Rutgers dot E-D-U. Debbie Walsh, Director of the Center for American Women in Politics, thank you so much for joining me and Celeste here on Driving Forces today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. So we have our next guest on the line, but before we get to that, a very quick question for Celeste. Celeste, because last week you gave us an update on why you disappeared for one of our episodes to head out west. Can yeah, it was you just... because, I, because I didn't like you anymore. <laughs> Can you just give us an update on what happened on that race? I started liking you again. Um, okay, no, what happened was I went out to, uh, I went out to Nevada for a very, very uh, uh, a hot-button race. It was uh, Democratic uh, Congresswoman Jackie Rosen challenging Republican incumbent Senator Dean Heller, uh, purple state of Nevada. Heller was the only Republican senator who was defending his position uh, in a state that was won by Hillary Clinton in 2016. It was a big money race, a big fight to the finish, as it turned out. Uh, I went out there to profile specifically uh, Jackie Rosen. I did try to talk to the to the uh, Heller campaign and unfortunately uh, was not able to get them to uh, to allow me any access 
access to that campaign or to to really get involved in that. But we did try. We did try to uh, to check out both campaigns. But in the end, uh, Jackie Rosen did win uh, that seat. That was uh, so far. Uh, it was the first pickup. I think we're still waiting. Still waiting on Arizona. Uh, Arizona will eventually have its first. Uh, uh, woman senator uh, based on the outcome there. But Jackie Rosen did turn out to be uh, the first Democratic pickup uh, in the uh, in the Tuesday election, uh, Democrat of Nevada. So the bread and butter of so many campaigns is doing your internal polling. And we also know there are external uh, uh nonpartisan entities that uh, poll. And that's bringing us up into our next guest, Stephen Greenberg, a pollster with the Siena College Research Institute. And that's where he develops and serves as spokesman for Siena's public opinion polling on state and national politics. You can often see him on the Insider segment on Spectrum News's nightly political news program, Capital Tonight, and also on the Capital Press Room with Susan Arbetter. Thank you so much for joining us on Driving Forces, Stephen. Great to be with you, Jeff. And uh, Celeste, I haven't talked to you for a dog's age. It's good to hear your voice oh, again. God, yeah, I, 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 you were probably going to say it, it was up to such a pleasant break, and I'm, uh, I am really bummed out to. No, just kidding, just kidding. It's awesome to hear from you, Steve. So uh, we're glad to have you on, uh, on Driving Forces, and uh, you know, let us, uh, let us have it. What are your, uh, what are your big takeaways from uh, Tuesday night? Well, I, I think two things uh, struck me the most. One is. While there was not a a blue wave nationally, there were certainly pockets of it. And there is no question that uh, the Atlantic Ocean provided a nice little blue wave for downstate New York. Uh, And we see that in the turnout. Uh, Four years ago, only 36 percent of voters voted in this in this gubernatorial election. Eight years ago, it was 45. Well, on Tuesday, it was 50 percent. So even significantly higher than it was eight years ago. And New York City voters turned out. So whereas four years ago, New York City votes accounted for about 26% of all votes cast statewide, even though New Yorkers, New York City residents account for 40% of all the registered voters in the state. Well, on Tuesday, 34% of the vote came from New York City. That's the largest share of of a New York City vote in the statewide vote in a midterm election in more than two decades. So we saw Democrats coming out, particularly in New York City and in the downstate suburbs. And I'd say the second thing is just the size by which the Senate Democrats took the majority. I'm not surprised they took the majority. It was bound to happen in a state with twice as many Democrats as Republicans. But the the number of seats that they won, particularly on Long Island, was surprising. And we talk about that much higher percentage of voter turnout here in New York City. And I'm still questioning how many people just threw their hands in the air and just headed home because they weren't going to wait in line because they had problems uh, getting you know up to the front to be able to cast their ballot. Yeah, so- that I don't know. I mean, I've heard anecdotally stories about that. But I mean, New York City... 42% of the registered voters in New York City voted on Tuesday. And that, as I said, is about the highest it has been in a couple of decades. So problems and all, New Yorkers turned out and voted. And they did so with essentially no really tightly contested races, with two exceptions. There was this 
New York 11, the, uh, the, the 11th congressional district for Staten Island and a small piece of Brooklyn. And there was one hot Senate race, state Senate race in, uh, in Brooklyn. But other than that, there were no tight legislative or congressional races anywhere else in the city. Now, that may help explain why turnout was up in Long Island and in the Hudson Valley and in lots of places upstate where you had these hotly contested races. But it certainly doesn't explain the increased turnout in Queens, Brooklyn, uh, Manhattan and the Bronx. That was really a Trump, uh, a reaction of Democrats coming out to vote against Donald Trump and virtually every Republican. Well, speaking of virtually every Republican, or actually just this one Republican, can you talk for a second about what what went down in Staten Island? Was that a was that an issue of uh, of sort of a national thing? This this uh, you know energized Democratic electorate, or was was uh, one of the candidates awesome, and the other candidate not so awesome, or is is uh, is Staten Island no longer the uh, the bastion of uh, Republicanism? We uh, we what's going on there? What's what's cooking? Well, no. Look, I mean, there are a lot of Democrats and Republicans, uh, a lot more Democrats and Republicans on Staten Island, but a lot of those Democrats vote for Republicans, whether it was Ronald Reagan two generations ago, Rudy Giuliani a generation ago. um, They vote for uh, candidates, not party. Most of the Staten Island Democrats are not straight party line voters. And this seat has been held by Democrats. It has been held by Republicans. Um, and I think you had two really good candidates. Uh, both candidates had uh, favorable, uh, had good favorability ratings from uh, the voters in the district. Diane Donovan was well known. And I think uh, Rose, you know, came out of nowhere. He wasn't particularly well known when this uh, election started. Uh, won a primary, won, you know, ran a real race, and I think he was an attractive candidate for Staten Islanders. He was not your typical Upper West Side New York City Democrat. He was a different kind of Democrat. So you combine that with that surge in Democratic voting that occurred downstate, and I think that's why you saw Rose uh, pass Donovan to take the seat. And I recall Rose focused significantly on national issues uh, such as the opioid crisis. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, every local race is different. There's some aspect of the national uh, in it in terms of Trump and what's going on in D.C. But so many of these House races, the vast majority of them, they're decided because voters are choosing between two candidates and are choosing between two candidates who they think will do the best job for them in Washington. So there's local issues, there's national issues, and then there's the candidates themselves. And uh, maybe that's a that's a perfect segue to start talking. Uh, uh, we have uh, time for a question here about the governor's race. Again, if you're just joining us, this is WBAI 99.5 FM. Uh, Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz. We're talking to Steve Greenberg, uh, uh, Sienna Polster and uh, uh, deft, deft political analyst. So uh, <laughs> what? OK, first of all, so. Uh, the in the governor's race, uh, Cuomo, uh, uh, Governor Andrew Cuomo, uh, the margin between him and his Republican challenger, uh, Mark Molinaro, narrowed uh, down right before the election. Sort of was that undecided, just figuring it out, or was it? Uh, w- did something happen, or, or what? What made it tighter towards the end there? Well, we saw it tightening. I mean, Cuomo's 
favorability rating went underwater for the first time since he's been governor. Uh, We saw that in our final poll. And we did see a tightening. But you know what we also saw was Cuomo remained extraordinarily strong with Democrats, stronger with Democrats than Molinero was with Republicans. And he had the support of more than three quarters of voters in New York City, we saw as well as doing okay in the downstate suburbs. And then you throw on there that increase in New York City and Democratic turnout downstate, and that really pushed him back up to where, you know, even uh, about as big as where he was eight years ago. Now, that said, we should point out uh, that among the four statewide offices, uh, Governor Cuomo got the fourth most votes. Uh, Gillibrand got the most. Controller Tom DiNapoli got second most. The new attorney general-elect, Tish James, was third, and then Governor Cuomo uh, uh, finished it off. But he won with a very impressive 58-36% uh, win. Yeah, I mean, he did have, th- uh, what, close to 3.5 million votes. No question, and, and that was because of the increased turnout. But, I mean, even his percentage, to win by 22 points, even in a, in a blue state like New York, uh, when you're running for a third term, I think that's pretty impressive. So clearly the voters, while they may not love the governor as much as they did eight years ago, uh, when they were facing this election, uh, they overwhelmingly decided uh, to give Andrew Cuomo a third term. So uh, we, I guess we're going to get to see how much they love him in New Hampshire and Iowa, or what, what do you think? Does he get on the plane? I don't know. Look, you know, during the primary not only did he say he wouldn't be running, that he would serve out his full four-year term, he invoked God. He said the only caveat is that if God strikes him down. So I don't know. Look, Celeste, you've known Andrew Cuomo uh, a long time, as long as I have. And do you really picture him going to, you know, all the fairs in Iowa, going to the diners in Manchester, New Hampshire? You know, street campaigning doesn't seem to be... Uh, the thing that Andrew Cuomo loves. So we'll we'll wait and see. I, I'm probably in the minority, but I I, I think he is going to be sticking around in New York as governor. Okay, I'll may I'll maybe I'll just go to uh, I'll go to uh, Dubuque and uh, wait for Mike Bloomberg or Kirsten Gillibrand. You know, there, there's certainly no dearth of New Yorkers who are interested in running for or being president. Steve Greenberg, thank you so much for joining Celeste Katz and I. Uh, uh, how can people learn more about Siena? Uh, well, it was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Uh, they should go to the uh, website, which is www.siena.edu slash SCRI for the Siena College Research Institute. And all the polling that we've done uh, this cycle and in past years is all up there and open for public view. Thank you very much for joining us. And thank Thank you, you. everybody. Uh, We are going to wrap up this edition of Driving Forces here on WBAI. We'd like to thank our guests, uh, uh, Christina Greer, Debbie Walsh, Steve Greenberg. We would always like to thank our wonderful engineer, Reggie. And I would like to most lovingly thank my co-host, Jeff Simmons. I'm Celeste Katz from Glamour Magazine. Please join us every Thursday at 5 for another edition of Driving Forces. Have a great afternoon. The defense industry, as it's called, is immensely powerful. It has a tremendous interest 
in maintaining these conflicts. We have the capability to stop the bloodshed around the world. The Trump administration is on a collision course with Iran. Monday, November 19th, a film screening and WBAI benefit featuring Enemies of Peace, preventing the next war in the Middle East, followed by a discussion led by filmmaker Roland Marconi and guests. Because what's been happening in the Middle East for a couple of decades now has, has just been horrendous. Monday, November 19th, 7 p.m. at the Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, between Hoyt and Bond. Admission to benefit WBAI is just $20. Register as a BAI buddy and enter for free. Info at WBAI.org. November is National Native American Heritage Month. So come spend the evening with me, John Kane, from WBAI's Let's Talk on Thursday, November 29th at 7 p.m. I will be hosting a free screening of Even the Rain, a powerful film that demonstrates the brutal acts committed against Native peoples by Columbus and his men and the violence and exploitation that continues even now. This Spanish-language film layers history, racism, and the plight of Indigenous peoples in a unique plot that recreates the past and strikes at the issues of today. And I want to extend a special invitation to our Spanish-speaking friends to help us catch all the nuances of the film. So come celebrate our special month by joining us at the Brooklyn Commons, 388 Atlantic Avenue in Brooklyn, New York. That's Thursday, November 29th, 7 p.m. for Even the Rain. This is Amy Millang, pianist and musical director of Jamboa, a new salsa experiment created by Anthony Carrillo. You can see and hear Jamboa live on November 18 at SOBs during WBAI's Salsa Explosion fundraiser. Also appearing in this all-star lineup at SOBs Sunday, November 18th will be Johnny Dandy Rodriguez and his dream team, Bobby Allende and Ocho y Mas, Charanga Pacha, and the Quintero Salsa Project with Luisito and Roberto Quintero. So please join me in supporting WBAI and take advantage of this opportunity to catch all five of these legendary and groundbreaking bands on Sunday, November 18th at SOB's located at 204 Varick Street on the corner of Varick and Housen Street. For more information, call 212-243-4940 or visit www.sobs.com. See you there. Do you want to understand and even change your financial situation? If so, then Economic Update is the program for you. Economics professor and host of Economic Update, Richard D. Wolf, discusses the current state of the economy, both locally and globally. Richard and various guests discuss wages, jobs, taxes, and debts on interest rates, prices, and profits. Also explores alternative ways to organize enterprises, markets, and government policies. Please join us on Thursdays at 6.30 p.m. to help and understand your financial situation a little better here on WBAI New York.
We've got our friends at CNN here. You guys love breaking news, and you did it. You broke it. I think what no one in this room wants to admit is that Trump has helped all of you. He couldn't sell steaks or vodka or water or college or ties or Eric, but he has helped you. He's helped you sell your papers and your books and your TV. You helped create this monster and now you're profiting off of him. We're with you, Michelle Wolf, but if corporate media has got you down, maybe you should try WBAI. We're listener-supported community radio, questioning the mainstream narratives trumpeted by the news profiteers. But in order for this whole thing to work, we need your help. Please go to give the number 2 WBAI.org to find out how you can support WBAI or call 516-620-3602. And thanks for supporting Free Speech Radio on WBAI New York. This is WBAI New York 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. The previous program was Driving Forces, hosted and produced by Celeste Katz and